This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Welcome to the National Security Conversation, Ambassador Hamad. Thank you very much, Happy. Ambassador, you've been India's ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Oman, and UAE, and you know the feelings in these countries about 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 Israel. What, what do you think of India's current policy towards Israel? And people say there has been a major change in India's. Israel no, no, there has been no change in India's policy. India recognized uh, Israel in 1948. Uh, we had we established diplomatic relations in 92. And there has been an incremental expansion in our bilateral relations. Now we're lot more. Uh, no, not significantly more. We, we buy defense equipment, uh, niche equipment. Israel meets 8% of our needs. Russia still Look at provides Netanyahu 65. and Mr. Modi, the best of friends. No, no. This is for, see, you should not mistake photo opportunities which both leaders need Optics uh, for real change. There's no real change. The relationship remains transactional as it has always been and it's as it will be. Mutual interest. India needs certain niche uh, equipment. Israel doesn't do transfer of technology. Israel doesn't do joint production. Israel doesn't do joint research. It sells. India will buy what it desperately needs, which it is not able to develop at home. Where they, so this is why I call it niche product, niche technology. Right? So this is number one. They also have technologies in certain other areas, particularly with regard to arid farming and use of water, etc. I welcome that. I think that is a very good way to go. We must have good relations with countries that have something to offer us and who value something that we can offer. Do recall that we have several thousand people of Indian origin living in Israel. Uh, many of them from Bombay and Pune uh, are in 50,000 of them who speak Marathi. So we have that kind of relationship. There's been nothing that has changed. Um, and it cannot uh, because India also has very substantial ties with the rest of the region. The traditional approach that India has had to the region is to maintain relations that are bilateral and transactional. Separate relations with each country, valuable in themselves mutually advantageous in themselves, right? My suggestion to you that I made uh, earlier is to go beyond this. Given the security scenario in the region today, I believe that the time for bilateral and transactional relations is over. India should now be a major security provider. India should promote true diplomacy and through partnership with other similarly placed countries a genuine interaction and intervention in the region to promote security and stability. So this was the bilateral transactional relationship that we had with Israel and the other major countries of the region bringing a lot of value to India and India giving back a lot of value, major market for their energy, uh, major economic partner, major market for investments. Uh, they provided a home for 8 million of our nationals who sent home 35 billion dollars. So all of this was actually extraordinarily mutually advantageous. But the cry from the region is that they want something more. 
if you read the joint statements that the Prime Minister has entered into with these countries and the engagements that we've had have yielded at least 15 such joint statements, every one of them speaks about a strategic partnership. Every one of them speaks about an Indian interest and role uh, in promoting regional peace and stability. India is unable to do that in the South Asian region. How do we imagine India doing that in the West Asian region? Isn't that punching above See, weight? you are using terms which make no very little sense. There are many parts of the Gulf which are closer to India than many parts of India itself. You know that between Gulf countries, the six countries of the GCC and India, there are 1,200 flights per week one way. 1,200 flights. What are you talking about making peace in the region, in the West Asian I'm making, talking about making peace in the region. Terms like South Asia and West Asia are not helpful. Today you are looking at significant changes in the geopolitical scenario. Eurasia and the Indian Ocean have today become one integrated security space. Gulf countries, which used to be at one time separate, Gulf did their own dynamics, West Asia, North Africa, all of them are merged. Gulf countries are involved in Syria. Gulf countries are involved in Libya and Egypt. Many Gulf countries are involved in Afghanistan. I would say to you that the security landscape from India to Morocco is one integrated security space. We have used earlier the terms neighborhood and extended neighborhood. We used to distinguish South Asia from the rest and called it extended neighborhood. I'm putting to you very clearly today that this, this distinction belongs to another era. Today, these are all integrated. Are, is not Pakistan very actively involved in destabilizing certain other areas, Afghanistan for example, and India? Is not Afghanistan the space where many countries in the world have been using it as their space? China, Russia, United States, Iran and Pakistan as well. And there's also India in a very significant way in terms but of... But you, you, you haven't told me what India can do. What is it that India can do in the region? India brings to the region extraordinary capacities and advantages. The civilizational connection of 5,000 years, which has remained uninterrupted and is very substantial, and an interaction that has been constantly refreshed and in order to respond to contemporary requirements. We have been a major supplier of food products, textiles, and jewelry to the region for the last 5,000 years. And today we are importers of oil and we provide skilled manpower right all the way from tycoons to labor. We provide those 8 million people. So we have constantly changed in terms of what we need from each other. But the relationship has remained intact. The second thing is India has a certain reputation. India is seen as non-hegemonic, non-intrusive and non-prescriptive. That is a very positive image. India is not seen as international. Ask the Nepalese, ask the Sri Lankans, ask the, ask the neighborhood countries in the region and they will tell you that's probably not accurate. No, no, that is, uh, India has not, uh, in, if India has sent its armed forces, uh, which it has done only to Sri Lanka and to the Maldives, it was entirely legal and uh, as, as per the request. Political interference in the neighborhood. <coughs> India has not manipulated uh, anybody else's politics. They are democratic countries. They are fully capable of handling their own affairs. 
as far as West Asia is concerned, the only intrusive role player has been the United States. So there is a very big difference between what India brings to the table and what the United States have been, has been doing to damage the region. So we have a certain credibility. Plus, we are valuable to them in terms of their sales of oil uh, right. market of for a very long time as uh, uh, technology partners. Uh, they are also would be, we would be able to, uh, as, uh, as uh, markets for their investments and the infrastructure development. So they are also looking at transforming the buyer-seller relationship into a substantial long-term mutually beneficial relationship. These are the advantages that India, by the way, India also has a lot of technological prowess in communications, space, etc., which they value and they are aware, IT, which they value and they are aware of. Uh, India also has, though we, we don't, we don't push it in anybody's face, India has tremendous defense capabilities, both in terms of manpower and equipment as also in technology, which is why they have turned to us and want to be partners with us. India also has one more interest, uh, which uh, sadly is now on the back burner, the logistical connectivity projects that we should have in the region, starting with Chabahar and going into Afghanistan, Central Asia and Russia. How oh, is that even possible with, uh, with India? Uh, soft peddling the whole Chabahar project thanks uh, to the American this process. is this is an error this is an error uh, what we are discussing is what why India's stakes are so high and now what it is our job yours and mine through this interview is to remind our audience of these issues if they don't remember them very few people know the nuances of West Asian affairs and India's stakes in West Asia we have so narrowed our strategic horizons as to be obsessed with Pakistan with no constructive way forward and ignoring India's crucial interests that lie just beyond Pakistan into regions that would welcome an Indian role and presence. Indeed. You know, one of the traditional arguments that has been made about the United States uh, and its presence in the West Asian region or in the Middle East, as they call it, is that the Americans were interested in the energy resources in the in the Middle East. Now that the American domestic energy production has gone up, do you think this focus of the Americans on energy in the Middle East is going to decrease and therefore they will pull back eventually from the Middle East? Uh, I should clarify that the United States itself was not never a major importer right. of West Asian resources. Its principal sources of oil were Canada, Mexico, Venezuela, uh, other Latin American countries and then Nigeria and Angola uh, and the Gulf of Guinea. So there, it's not that it was a direct, but its allies depended. And as you know, West Asia has the world's largest uh, reserves mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you know it has countries. So they were important because US allies depended on this region, China, uh, I mean Japan, Korea, Europe, etc., depended on this region. Also, U.S. policy was to ensure that no power or force hostile to the West gained control over the region. So it was a two-way street. That interest has not gone away just because you have a shale revolution. You, the ongoing importance of this region as a source of energy for the globe, for the world, has not abated one bit. 
two or three reasons for this. Number one, the world is going to continue to depend on hydrocarbon resources for at least till 2050. We don't know, but as all the projections indicate that they will do so, number one. Number two, that even if it is, if the European demand goes down, the demand will continue because they have to sustain uh, uh, their lifestyle and their industry. If there is no indication that there will be a fundamental change in terms of travel, in terms of transportation, which crucially depends on the fuel. There could be improvements in terms of technology, but not in the use uh, of, these, uh, of these fuels. The second is shale oil is a very, is not there forever. It is going to, by the time in, in maybe in the next few years, you will see a rapid decline in shale oil production. And indeed indications are that from 2025 onwards, the world will start, not the world, the United States will start depending on conventional oil to, uh, to a certain extent all over again. So conventional oil is going to remain. What will change is A, technology, uh, so conservation uh, will come in, technology, and a certain shift, gradual shift, uh, not yet palpable, but a gradual shift in, in favor of renewable. You know, magic wand uh, like uh, nuclear was projected at one time by the United States, by George Bush Jr. in India itself, and you know where it faded away. That, that magic wand wasn't there after Fukushima. So what we are looking at today is a gradual shift in favor of so solar and wind and tidal energy, but the commercialization of these uh, technologies hasn't occurred as yet. Right. We have some way to go. So I think that what the world needs today and where you and I are placed, we have to consider energy security as for the next 20 years. And in that 20 years, it is going to be fossil fuel. Uh, and therefore, this region will remain important as the world's principal source of energy. Given the importance of this region, how do you evaluate the Chinese, the nature of Chinese engagement in the, in the Middle East? Chinese engagement with West Asia is anchored in energy. China's need for imported energy has increased very, very significantly. And uh, therefore, the region remains extremely important for the Chinese, primarily as a source of energy. China has got diversified sub suppliers. I mean, it has not only got significant domestic production, it gets from Central Asia and from Russia. And you are aware of the pipelines, uh, projects that they have put in place. Having said, therefore, their concern with regard to West Asia is primarily to ensure the stability of the region so that the energy supplies continue. Exactly the same interest that India has. India and China do not compete there. The second interest that India, that China has is with regard to the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative is a Chinese idea, but it is of global significance because it cannot be a Chinese idea. Once a project enters another country, it becomes a project of that country. And a, a number of so resources are put together for that project. So the, we must get away from the thought that it is a Chinese project. But Belt and Road is a revival of a very old and traditional connection 
that Eurasia had from Xi'an to Antioch and beyond. And the, and the region of the Indian Ocean had through the Spice Route. Today, with India's membership of the SCO on the one hand and the Indian Ocean Rim Association on the other, these two spaces, the maritime space of the Indian Ocean and the Eurasian space, have become one. India is the belt that links them. So I believe uh, that there is no reason for us to get panicky about Belt and Road. Belt and Road is important for China. But Afghanistan and Pakistan cuts us off. All of them, all of them have to participate. Belt and Road is successful only if there is peace and stability. It cannot be successful in times of war. You can't build roads when there is war going on and you can build certain tracks. So you're saying we, sh we needn't be unnecessarily concerned about the Chinese presence, the, scoop and the scope and nature of the Chinese presence? Of not presence. I, I'm talking about Belt and Road. Belt and Road is going to involve uh, all the major countries of the region and every other day they are showing support for it. They want to play a role. UAE and Saudi Arabia believe they have the capacity and the resources to provide actual physical development of infrastructure. I believe that that's going to be extremely important. Where you are concerned, there are legitimate concerns with regard to security. That's a separate matter. And for that, every nation, including India, has to A, develop its own capacities, build up solid relationship with countries that matter, ensure that our presence is respected and that we have engaged spaces where our uh, naval forces particularly can expand to the extent uh, that they are required to do. I believe that we have achieved a very, very great success with regard to safeguarding our interests in the broad Indian Ocean region. But I don't think that we should end the scenario with security. Security maintains the status quo. What we should be doing is, where do we go from here? And I'm looking at a very strong relationship between the SCO on the one hand and the IORA on the other, a very broad, significantly uh, stable and mutually beneficial space where for the first time, these countries that engaged with each other for 3000 years earlier are able to do so in an environment that does not involve Western intervention and Western powers. But that requires you having, uh, you resolving your conflicts with the Pakistanis, um, you having the Afghans on your side. It's, it's, it's a more difficult uh, scenario than... Uh, there is no period in world history where major powers did not have ongoing issues. It did not mean that you could not do something else. Uh, much of the, uh, you know, uh, world history is like that. I am thinking in the medium to long term, what I believe is happening, we are obsessed with 1947. The dynamics of India today is cramped by the agenda which is emanates from 1947. My own understanding of Nehru's thinking was that he built an idea of the past to be able to use it the idea of plurality or commodativeness, etc., so that you have a united Indian people going forward into the future. So the use of the past was for operational purposes to subserve a certain agenda. For certain sections of the present scenario, you know, past is an end in itself. That's right. That's right. It subserves an, an ideological 
value which is not linked with the future. So suddenly you find that at this stage in our history where we should have been marching towards the future, we are being dragged back to 1947 and the issues that had agitated our ancestors then, that happened then. But today we are in 2020, 2019, in a month or so we'll be in 2020. The generations that have come, you know, in the 70 years since independence, they, have, they are looking to the future. And if I want to take any example from the West, from West Asia, the people of West Asia don't want jihad, they don't want Shia-Sunni divide, they don't want to have authoritarian rule. They are looking at the future. They want employment, they want technology, they want an easy social and cultural life where people are at peace with each other. They don't want divisions based on identity. They want a, a warmth and camaraderie. So this, if, if that is so palpable in West Asia just next door to us, it is of course much more resonant with us. Absolutely. Um, I'm my last question. I'm, I'm still trying to get my uh, head around the Iran-Saudi rivalry um, and, and how, do, how, how, how should India view and approach the Iran-Saudi rivalry given the fact that both of these are important partners for you India? You see, this divide is of relatively recent origin. It emerges from the fact that in 2011, the balance of power collapsed in the region and Saudi Arabia became insecure. History has told us, you are a professor of international security, the balance of power is crucial first step to maintain peace. Because if a nation is not self-confident about its own security, it then starts doing foolish things. It starts building up armed forces, it starts intervening in other tries to build alliances, it starts looking at identity issues in order to put together coalitions on the basis of sub-identities, it becomes confrontational and aggressive. You know, Saudi insecurity is a classic illustration of what I have just said. This panic running into Syria, uh, this uh, uh, shaping of the confrontation in Shia Sunni sectarian bases, uh, engaging with the Israelis as partners in the region and depending so, so wholeheartedly on the Trump administration that frankly objectively has no credibility, all these are symptomatic of a nation in panic. And I believe that what they really need is reassurance. That is where India, a country like India and possibly China, Japan and Korea, who have a stake in this. We have no future. I mean, we can't talk of South Asia. South Asia and the rest of Asia, North Asia, Northeast and Southeast Asia, have no future if West Asia goes up in flames. If, okay. Absolutely. Uh, it's not just energy. And I can, I also, I hate to say this, but I must gently remind my Indian audience, what about the security of 8 million people? If there is a conflict, if my heart bleeds for one worker mistreated, are we not jeopardizing, by doing nothing, are we not jeopardizing the lives of several thousand people who live in this region and who will be caught in the crossfire? Can we just, do, do we have the luxury of closing our, uh, put, uh, pulling the shutters down in Delhi and pretending that it will solve itself by itself? Particularly when you have a dysfunctional administration in the White House. 
So I suggest to you that today we have to be able to engage with them. We, sh we have it. I am trying. It is something we have in man. And I know that bureaucratically we are terrified of doing something new. But I am saying to you that this is a new scenario. This is an important point. The past is not necessarily helpful. It can teach, it can tell you a few things. But you as a student of history and politics know that the past can only go so far because the world order has also changed. The kind of things that have happened in the last five years are totally unprecedented. The emergence of new powers, uh, uh, seeking a space for themselves, development of technologies in nations that were beleaguered 50 years ago, are developing state-of-the-art technologies, the outreach to space, the issues of cyber security, and above all, the aspirations of young people and their complete comfort with technology and communications. All of these have qualitatively changed the global scenario. And India cannot go with the mindset of 1947 into 2020. Wonderful talking to you, Ambassador Ahmad. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.